0: did the Bible reading this last week, you probably recognize it's like, okay, we get the point. Move on. It's like you're saying the same thing over and over and over again. And the really good news is that this is the last week, the uh, the last chapters in the first part of the book, the first part of the argument that the author is making. So starting next week... We're turning a corner from, from the, uh, you know, the foundational argument that the author has been making now to the practical outworkings of that argument in our day-to-day life. And so the, from starting next, this coming week, starting tomorrow, moving on through the rest of the series, we're going to have a lot of real practical life application that's, that comes as a result of the foundation we have laid in the first seven weeks of the series. But today uh, we're going to move on. I want to kind of wrap up everything we've talked about at this point. I'm not going to go back and, and review. That's not what I mean, but we're going to bring, bring closure to the first uh, 10 and a half chapters. Is that, it's first 18. Does that mean 10 and a half chapters? Or is that Nine and a half chapters? Nine Nine and a half. Nine and a half. Yeah, OK. The first nine and a half chapters. Um, if you know me, you know I like to do woodworking projects and I've, I've, I like building things around the house. Um, Furniture is kind of my thing. I like building tables, end tables, stools. I uh, plan on working on a new kitchen table for our family, uh, would be the next project. But I don't just like to make things out of wood, I like things that are made out of real wood. And, and what I mean by real wood is actual wood that hasn't been, you know, turned into sawdust and then mixed with a bunch of glue and then they try to make wood out of it. I don't like chipboard or press board or MDF when it comes to especially making furniture because it just doesn't last. It doesn't hold up. And um, I just burned on the burn pile last week a set of bookshelves that were made out of chipboard that... You know, if you've ever bought one of those like twenty dollar set of bookshelves from, from Walmart, you know, they last for about you know three or four months and then they start r- rocking a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, you know. it's just like it's a it's actually an actual hazard to leave them up because they've got so much weight they're gonna fall down. So I like if I can, I like our furniture in the house to be made out of real actual wood. Actual wood, which can be increasingly more difficult to come by uh, with the furniture that's made now, nowadays. And so what, what we have done in the past is we've gone to Goodwills or to secondhand stores and we'll find a dresser. And I'll look at the dressers and I'll kind of open it up and I'll see all this do you like this dresser? You know, I'm not talking about the color. I just like the, the, you know, does it look like it'd be a good dresser? And I look at it and make sure, is it real wood? And if it's real wood, we've bought like a you know, $20 dresser. And then, then you have the option, you can choose to do what most people would do because it's already been painted 5, 10, 15, 20 times, right? You can, you can decide to paint it the color you want it to be And just put on a fresh coat of paint and make it look like you want. That's, I know, a valid technique that a lot of people use nowadays. Or you can do what I like to do, which is get some paint stripper and strip it all the way down to the wood. And then do the work, you you know, sand off every last little bit of paint. All that lead-based paint that we talked about last week, all that lead paint that's on there, and get it down to what the wood would have been at the beginning. Just put a nice clear coat on there and just see the original wood. That's what I like to do. I had a, I had a moral stance on painting wood. It was just something you don't do, and we've done it ever done it since. But but I still don't like it. I, it's still not something I like. But but ask yourself a question: Which kind of person are you? Are you the put on another fresh coat of paint and another fresh coat of paint and another fresh coat of paint just to get that new look for a little while or are you the strip it all the way down to the wood kind of a person and start from scratch to get it how it was supposed to be? And so I think we've got a picture up here. If we can uh, show that picture, Timely, the first picture without any text on it. This is kind of what it looks like when you're stripping something, right? You put on the stripper. I know that sounds bad. It's just what it's called. So, so, (laughs) uh, um, and we're actually, yeah, and we're talking about pleasure this morning. I was going to talk about pleasure and stripper, but I didn't think that was a good way to start off the sermon. Um, (laughs) so, um. So you put the stripper on, and then it starts to bubble up, and then you take a putty knife like this, and you start to scrape it off. And you'll see there'll be some stubborn layers on there, and you have to go back over and and put on another coat. And then if you can't get it off with, you know, two or three coats of stripper, then you have to start sanding it down, and you have to wear a mask and all that stuff. But then eventually you get to the real wood, and you're back to a, a fresh, clean starting point. Keep that in mind as we go through this morning. And I'll come back to that in just a little bit. I want to highlight a few verses from Hebrews 9 and 10 to set the foundation for our, our sermon. And then we'll get out of here as quickly as possible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, just kind of open them up and just keep them open to Hebrews 9 and chapter 10, especially chapter 10. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God like an unblemished lamb or a lamb or spotless lamb you've probably heard that term if you've spent much time around church how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? And we spent some time last week and over the course of this last week talking about the fact that Jesus doesn't just want to cleanse us externally, but he actually wants to cleanse our consciences. He wants to give us a clean conscience, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. But what does that mean? I think we need to dig into that a little bit and get an understanding. Then Hebrews 9, 27 28 says, just as people are destined to die once, uh, this is not really tied in with the, the theme we're talking about this morning, but I wanted to address it so that we don't miss over the important point. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of Many And He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. And in response to the devotional this week, Jim shared this, and I thought it was really good, so I wanted to share it with you this morning. Jim says, "...Judgment will be a terrible thing for the unbeliever. Their sins will be laid out for all to see, and they will realize that God is the righteous judge." And that's a truth leading back, going all the way back to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and 5 in that discussion we had about, about people, you know, the, the false, the myth of once saved, always saved. If you pray a prayer, then you're saved for all of eternity and that you can, you can pray a, a superstitious prayer and be good. And I think that's a great false teaching in our life. And we do believe in the the eternal security of the believer, but we also believe, according to what Scripture teaches, believers can reject their salvation and choose to walk away from it. And there's a great emphasis throughout the entire New Testament on whether or not you're going to, in the face of persecution, stand and testify for Christ, or if you will succumb to the temptation to deny Him. And so... There is is something that we have to continue on in our faith and carry on our faith all the way through our last breath on this earth. And anyone who, who has tried to, in their own power, earn their status and position with God, judgment will be a terrible thing. Their sins will be laid out for all to see. And they will realize that God is the righteous judge. And they have to pay for their sin. But then Jim says, I love this, on the other hand, for those of us who are in Christ, there will be no condemnation. That is where we we will hear the phrase, well done, my good and faithful servant. For us, judgment will not be a bad thing because that is where God will wipe away every tear. For we will be made perfect, just like Jesus. So we are destined to die once, and we are going to face judgment. For those of us who are in Christ, the judgment is taken care of. There is no condemnation. And that's a good, peaceful thing to think about. But then in Hebrews chapter 10, we start getting into the idea I want to set up for today that's going to be foundational for the, for the rest of the book. Verse 4 it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible, that's what the author says. He's used that word in Hebrews chapter 6 when he was talking about coming back to repentance. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then 10 through 14 of chapter 10, it says, And by that will, talking about the will of the Father, the perfect will of the Father, by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, priest every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. So while the Old Testament priests, they would have to continue to offer the sacrifices over and over again, annually they would have to offer the same sacrifices, they would have to continuously offer sacrifices, continually do the manual labor of offering sacrifices, contrast that with Jesus who once he offered his life as a sacrifice, he sat down. it was done. I'm done. That's it. That's all we have for this morning. It was finished. And then verse 14 says, For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. And remember, don't think of perfect how we think of perfect, but think of perfect as complete. He has made ready, For the voyage, fully outfitted for the journey to eternity. By his sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 10, it was those who have been made holy. And then verse 14, it's those who are being made holy. It's interesting. Let's cover the Old Covenant real quick and kind of get that, that out of the way. The Old Covenant merely covered over sins. That's, that's the argument that the author is making, that what the Old covenant did, covenant did was it covered over the sins. It was like putting a fresh coat of paint over the sin every single year. Annually, they would, they would just kind of put on a new coat of blood To cover over the sins. I know it's disgusting to think about, but it's just, they just cover over the sin in a new coat of scarlet paint, and then the next year come back and do it again, and again, and again, and again. It didn't eradicate their sin, nor could it do so. But their sacrifice covered their sins, until they could be dealt with permanently by Jesus Christ. The covering was a foreshadowing to the dealing that Jesus was going to do later. Dr. Michael S. Heiser, he says this about the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sins. Uh, it says, the real goal of the sin offering was ritual purification, It was designed to guard sacred space, territory sanctified by God's presence from infection and impurity. By definition, every person or object falls short of this divine perfection and must therefore be ritually marked as acceptable for holy ground. The sin offering, better rendered as purification offering, was therefore applied to people and inanimate objects to mark them as acceptable before God. These people and objects were not acceptable, acceptable because they had done evil, but because they were imperfect, they fell short of the holy perfection that God's presence required. The ritual reinforced the idea of the complete otherness of God. The verb translated forgive essentially means to be positively disposed toward. In the context of purification, God now approves of the person or object entering his presence. And while the verb may be used elsewhere to address moral guilt, when it comes to the, Le- the Levitical sacrifice itself, the point was not absolution. Forgiveness, dealing with the sins permanently for all time, but acceptability for entering God's presence. So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, did not set people free from the guilt of their sins. It could not do that. The people were not set free from the guilt. In fact, the author said they were reminded annually of their sins. It was as though though they would come annually and give a sacrifice and be reminded of the fact that they were sinful people. So it didn't absolve or forgive their sins, it covered it up to make them acceptable to be on God's holy ground. And the priest especially had to do this. The priest had special sacrifices and rituals he had to perform to be able to enter the Holy of Holies, And the others in the community didn't have to do this or couldn't do this because they weren't allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. There was only one person who could go into the holiest place. And it was through the ritual of blood and sprinkling blood on pretty much everything in the tabernacle that they were able to do this. They would cover up the evil, cover up the sin. So the sins were being temporarily covered by the blood of the animals that were being sacrificed year after year, they covered up their sins. And for all the years that the covenant was in effect, they would just add another layer of paint to cover up the sins of the year before. Every year they'd have to add another coat and another coat and another coat so that they would be acceptable to be near God. But then Jesus comes and he does something entirely different. And this is why it's so significant. And I think this is why the author is ending his foundational argument with this point. And remember, he's been talking to people who are facing persecution and the choice to curse Jesus. And we talked about how, how awful that curse was to curse Jesus and go back to the Old Covenant. And he's saying, look, the Old Covenant could not do what Jesus did. Jesus does something entirely different. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits For his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. His work was finished. He didn't just put on a new fresh coat of paint. He didn't have to clean out the paintbrush afterward to save it for next year. He could throw it away. He was done with it. It was finished. This word take away is another nautical term, which is, I think, really interesting to think about here. Take away, it actually means casting off. And it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 27, verse 40, where they cast off the anchors. They had four anchors on the ship that they were using Strategically to get them through this radical storm. And at the end of, of Paul and the people on the ship and their fight to survive the storm, they decide to cast off the anchors and take all of the, all of the energy they had and run the ship aground to get to the safety of the island. And so the last part of what they had to do is they had to cast off or take away the anchors, the four anchors that, that they had been using so that they could actually have the momentum they needed to get to shore. It means to leave behind entirely. It's a nautical term to cast loose, taking up the anchors from both sides of the ship, preparing for departing. It's, it's leaving it behind Forever. So, get that picture of of Jesus in your mind. What Jesus does, the, the Old Testament could not take away sins. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, could not cast away entirely sins, it could not cut the cord. Forever, you are constantly bound to the anchor of your sin under the old covenant and reminded annually that when you came in to offer your sacrifice, you still had the anchor of sin holding you back. But Jesus comes in and what he does is he he takes it away altogether. He, he, and what the author is going to say in the next several chapters, he actually sets us free from sin so that we can live an entirely different life so we we have been like we said last week we have been present status current status is we are holy because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ but the author here also says that we are being made holy that as God sees us, he sees what Christ has done and we are made perfect because of the sacrifice of Christ. But that perfection is something that takes place over the course of our life that we are being made holy all the way until we die. It's a, it's, it's a now and not yet. not yet. It's a, it's a current status and it's a future salvation. Here's what the author says constantly contrasts in this letter. But like uh, my wife and I, uh, Becky and I have talked about and there's been some frustrations. like, oh, we're not under the old covenant. We didn't have to offer sacrifices. So what does all of this have to do with me today? Well, as I was wrestling with that this is this is kind of where God led me and I just want to share with you what i think what I think the relevance of this is for us is that we we may not have lived under the old covenant and sacrificed for our sins, but we are very much still anchored to sin, though we need Jesus to set us free from. We have anchors of sin holding us back in our hearts and our minds and our entire lives. And if we're being honest, there are layers and layers and layers of sin. The only acceptable use of an illustration for an onion is to talk about sin. And the la- like the layers of an onion, you know, you peel back one layer only to discover that there's another layer. And if you try to address the second or third or fourth layer, sometimes before you address the first one, you're not ready to address the second or third or fourth one until you've addressed the first one. And like many in our church that I pray for on a consistent basis, we like the sin, we like the onion. We like the layers. If we're being honest with ourselves, I think we like the layers. People don't sin because they hate the sin. We sin because we like it. Now, I would argue a lot of times after we've committed whatever sin and the feeling of guilt starts to stir in our hearts, We will say we didn't like that, but we liked the layer. There are several layers I wanna maybe draw our attention to this morning as we start to wrap up. Five layers. We like the layers, we're comfortable with the layers. The first layer is the pleasure layer. If we didn't desire it and derive some pleasure from it, we wouldn't do it. So there's a layer of sin in our lives that that gives us pleasure. Personal example, chocolate chip cookies and apple pie. I love chocolate chip cookies. We have an apple orchard just so we can have Apple pie. But it's no secret, I consume too many treats. This is what I bring to our men's group that we just had this last Wednesday night. I bring cookies, chocolate chip cookies. And I don't know if you saw this this last week, but a recent study from the University of Bordeaux has revealed that sugar and sweet reward can not only substitute for addictive drugs like cocaine, but can even be more rewarding and attractive. At the neurobiological level, the neural substrates of sugar and sweet reward appear to be more robust than those of cocaine. Now, if I had a, had a plate of cookies up here, and I was just kind of snacking on a cookie, you might think it was cruel because I'm not offering you one, but you wouldn't probably judge me for eating a cookie during the service, but, but how would you treat me if during the service I just had a tray of cocaine up here and uh, <laughs> I was just taking a little bit here and there? You might raise an eyebrow at it, right? I mean, you might think, hey, something, something's off with, uh, with David today. We might need, to, uh, might need to pray for him a little bit. Or if we go out to lunch together and instead of getting the cookie at Wendy's, I just order the side of cocaine or... And you wouldn't, I mean, you wouldn't judge me if I got the cookie, but you would if I got some pain pills, right? Well, maybe maybe this is a bigger sin issue in my life than I've really ever given it credit for. Maybe it's a real, actual, legitimate addiction. And so there's a pleasure in my life. I derive pleasure from sugar, from cookies, from apple pie. And I don't want to give that up. And God may be asking me to, and I like how it makes me feel, makes me feel loved. And you think I'm kidding. But what about other things in our lives that we derive pleasure from? DASP and colleagues in 2018 surveyed 1036 people about pornography use. And they found that 73% of women, women, and 98% of men reported internet porn use in the last six months. for being honest with ourselves there are things that we like and we know that they're wrong but we don't want to give them up because we derive pleasure from them and then we feel guilty so the first layer is the layer of our pleasures the next layer is the layer of our personal beliefs the my truth layer Probably saw that one coming. We hold on to a lot of beliefs. There are a lot of beliefs that we have in our lives that we cling to as though they're truth, and they make sense to us, so we hold on to them. Regardless of whether or not they're true, we hold on to them because we're used to them, we're comfortable with them, we like the predictability of these beliefs. For instance, a personal example from my life is I tend to think people would be better off if they listened to my advice. I don't know why are you guys laughing at all of these things? I'm trying to be vulnerable and you guys laugh at me. I can prove it too, because a lot of people have ignored my advice and ended up regretting it over the years. A 2016 survey found that 50.3% of all Americans agreed with the statement, I trust my gut to tell me what's true and what's not. So at least half of us in this room, when it comes to knowing what's true and what's not, what's right and what's wrong, what's real and what's not real, half of us in this room, according to this survey, would say that we just kind of... We trust our gut to tell us what we need to do, what we need to think. In fact, as a culture, we've talked many times how we've redefined opinion as truth. And in turn, we live our lives by these truths, my truths, and expect the other, others around us to embrace our truth. What that communicates to me is that we hold to a personal belief, a personal truth really tightly, that there are beliefs and truths that we cling to in our hearts, all of us, myself included. And, and we, we may know flat out that they're not true, they're not real, but we like them. And so we cling to them. They're more important to us. The third layer is the identity layer. A lot of us have assumed a lot of different identities over our lifetime. Even though they're not who we really are, we're, we're comfortable with these identities. We're more comfortable with these identities that we kind of put on ourselves then we are with the real me deep down underneath. And so we say things like, well, I'm just, that's just who I am. You know, I've just, in, in my, my family of origin, tempers have been one of our things. And so we'll say things like, well, I, I, just, I'm, I just have a bad temper, it's just who I am. And so we cling to that identity because it's easier to cling to a false identity than to let God really search the deeper parts of our lives and our hearts and see why, why are we angry people? It's comfortable. It's, even though it might not be who we really are down deep, it's comfortable. I also have some other identities I'm trying to rewire in my brain. We've talked about this a little bit, but one of the identities that, that I'm actively trying to, to rewire in my mind is the, the identity of being a failure as a pastor. I don't like it. I don't like taking that as an identity for myself. but it makes sense when you look at things a certain way. And so even though it's not even an identity that I would choose to embrace, it, it, it kind of does make sense logically speaking in certain areas and it's something that constantly goes through my mind when I think about my identity. Yeah, probably a lot of pastors, I think, wrestle with that feeling. I also struggle with the identity of not being a likable person, not being able to have close friends, struggle with the identity of being obese, especially hard when your doctor calls you obese struggle with the identity of being a loser. You know, I've talked about this my, my whole life. I've been kind of the loser kid and not really fit, it, fit in with most crowds and always been kind of on the outside. And so maybe there's just something inherently wrong about who I am that makes it hard for me to have close friends and to have deep relationships. I wrestle with the identity of not being fun, not being a funny person, and really... It doesn't help when people don't laugh at your jokes. But these are all some identities that I'm trying to undo in my life. So that's the identity layer. The next one is the ambitions layer. We, if we're being honest, we have ambitions for our lives, right? Right? We have ambitions, I have ambitions for my life, and a lot of us, we're going to pursue those ambitions, whether they're in line with God's desires for our lives or not. For example, from my life, I really wanted a job, a worship pastor job at a church, And I pursued it as hard as I possibly could. I begged and pleaded for God to give me this job. And I had this prayer that I would just pray while I was driving, just kind of pray it almost mindlessly and repetitiously, just a three or four sentence prayer. And I just prayed over and 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 over again. Literally, obsessively prayed this prayer, pleaded for God to give me this job and he did and that job nearly destroyed me and it nearly destroyed my family but if i'm being honest i really didn't care if that was what god wanted for me i wanted the job I've also had a strong ambition as a, as a leader. Wanted to be a leader, wanted to be the guy in charge. Wanted to be able to, you know, to make the decisions and just kind of get out there in front and lead the charge. Everybody come follow me, we're gonna, we're gonna conquer the world. But the more I do it, the less I desire to be the person in charge. even though I understand that God has me in this role and there are times like I've already said there are times it seemed like it, w- it would make more sense for God to replace me with a more qualified person in my thinking but I understand and believe that there's a reason he has me here <laughs> and I go, well I guess we gotta go somewhere else this guy's never leaving. <laughs> Used to have an ambition to, to grow a really big church. And that was my ambition when we first started here. Just really believe that was what, what I was built for be a mega church pastor. And that ambition drove me for the first couple of years we were here. The last layer is our relationship layers. Relationship layers. We rarely, I would argue as humans, especially in our American culture where everything's about me getting it my way and my time, we rarely love someone without an ulterior motive. I mean, I would say at best, it's probably selfish. We're selfish in our love of others because they fulfill some need of ours. That's probably the best version of love that we see on, a, on, on the most consistent basis in our society, in our world, where, where we love someone else because they fulfill a need for us. At worst, I would say it's unjust, it could be manipulative, it could even be abusive because we're taking advantage of the person for our own benefit. And I'm not talking about abuse as though most of us think, you know, the really harsh, hard kind of, you know, emotional and physical abuse. But I think, if we're being honest, a lot of us have abused relationships to get something for ourselves, out of that relationship. There have been times in my life where I gave someone special attention because of something they could offer me. Most of the time it worked out in the end because I liked that person, was able to actually build a real relationship with them, but my motives weren't always right for getting to know that person to begin with. I think oftentimes, maybe too many times, we form relationships based on the way the other person meets our needs and flat out take advantage of people because we want something from them for ourselves. Those, I think, are the five layers. Those are based on Loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I'll be doing a little bit more teaching on that in the week ahead. But underneath all of this, I think what Jesus wants to get down to is he wants to get beneath all of those layers of sin. He wants to to set us free from all of those anchors of those layers of sin and get down to the real deep underlying issue of our motive we've said around here alex actually came up with the phrase what is the why that drives your life what is the why that drives our life most of the time if we're being honest it's ourselves and i think the reason based on you know my prayer and study of this passage i think I think the reason we feel guilty isn't because we do the wrong things. I think the reason we feel guilty is because we wanted to do the wrong thing. And we wanted to do that wrong thing because our motive is to love ourselves. And if you love yourself, you give yourself what makes you happy and what you really really want. And so while, yes, there are unintentional sins, and and I think oftentimes we do feel guilty when we discover that we unintentionally did something wrong, and there were sacrifices for that in the Old Testament. I think most of the time we feel guilty because we did something wrong that we wanted to do for our own pleasure. and then we realize our motive was all about getting what we wanted and i think what jesus really wants to do is he wants to get beneath all of these layers he wants to peel back the layers he wants to cut off take away the anchors of of our of our pleasures of our desires he wants to take away the anchors of our false beliefs and our false truths that we've embraced. And he wants to set us free from the anchors of the mistaken identities and and, and the selfish ambitions and, and the misuse of relationships until he gets all the way down to the very core, the motive of our lives, the motive of our hearts. Like we just... We oftentimes have the wrong motive that's driving everything. See, right things done with the wrong motives is still a wrong thing. Pursuing a relationship with God so that you can get something back from God is the wrong motive. Right? A lot of us, I think a lot of times, have pursued a relationship with God because we want God to give us our wish. And so like when I was praying that prayer to get that job at the church, man, I was reading my Bible more. I was praying all the time. But my motive was still wrong. The right things done with the wrong motives are still wrong. Though it's less frequent, far less frequent, there are times when doing the wrong things with the right motives are right. And I'm not, I don't live by this exception, but the way my mind works, I have to share it. Because Rahab the prostitute lied, and we're supposed to tell the truth, right? We're not supposed to bear false witness. But Rahab the prostitute lied to protect the Jewish spies who had come in to Jericho to survey the town. And she's honored as righteous for having done that. So somewhere there's, some, there's something about doing the wrong thing with the right reasons that actually can be seen as righteousness in God's eyes, but I wouldn't live by that exception. I think we, should, we have to ask, what, what's the underlying motive for everything I do? What is the underlying motive, the why, for everything I do? Is it to love God and love others, or is it to love me? And then if it's to love me, we have to ask ourselves, well, well then what do we do if our, if our motives are wrong? What do we do if the motives of our heart are wrong? And that's one of the things I hope we can really start to settle on is that it's not about a personally achieved Perfection it's not it's not like we can live up to some perfect standard you know like this this 90-day journey we're on it's not about hitting all of your marks and getting it perfect and if you can just get this thing perfect then you'll be up to God's standards or if you can you know if you can memorize a whole book of the Bible you know then and if you can just if you can just go one day one day without, without you know then it's, then I've done it you know it's we think it's about this personally achieved perfection where we have, through our own willpower, forced ourselves to live a righteous life. That's not it at all. It's actually about surrender, it's that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. We have been made holy. And, and the only way to have been made holy is when we, like we talked about at Communion, we, when we have died to ourselves, when we have denied ourselves every single day. That's why I think it's, the word daily is in there. Deny yourself daily and take up your cross. Daily and follow Jesus. We have been made holy and, and, and we are being made holy as we daily deny ourselves, right? I mean, this so the whole thing kind of comes back to denying ourselves and as we deny ourselves, then we're starting to be made holy because we deny what we want because what we want most is Christ. And I fully believe the reason we're we're. Doing this whole, this whole thing is because if we if you can if we can just spend more time with Christ, if we can spend more time in the presence of our Creator and our Savior, then I believe that Christ Himself will deal with the underlying motives of our heart. Amen. If we let Him if we spend the time with him and seek to get to know him and to understand him, and if we give him permission, if we give him access to our motives and say, God, I I want you to get, I want you to get beneath all the layers and, and at the very core of my heart, change the why. And I think if we let him, he'll, He'll get beneath the selfish ambitions. He'll get beneath the false beliefs and the false truth. He'll get beneath the mistaken and imposed identities that we've embraced and that have been forced on our lives. He'll get beneath our ambitions. He'll get beneath the way we use others for our own benefit. And he'll get down to that place where we're really who we really are. And there, he'll come in and replace everything with his new and living way. With the new heart and, and the new heart where he actually has access to the thing underneath it all that drives everything we think and say and do and he'll get down into that really deep part of who we are and he'll say, that's not who you are. I am who you are. He won't force himself on you. He won't make you do something against your will. You have to want him to do it. You can go to your grave a selfish jerk that no one wants to be around and Jesus won't force you to stop. You can go to your grave as a as an insecure, superficially polite person who takes advantage of others for your own pleasure, and Jesus won't force you to change because it's about surrender. It's about a willful choice on my part to surrender. Not personally achieving surrender, but just actual raising the white flag, surrender, Giving up and accepting what God has. It's not something I do, it's something Christ does in us. So maybe you've been feeling guilty. I would ask you to wrestle with that. Ask why. Why are we feeling guilty? Is there something in our hearts? Is there a motive in our hearts? that's causing us to pursue things in this life for the wrong reasons, and that's why we feel guilty. Is it the pursuit of a pleasure? Is it the pursuit of an identity? Is it the pursuit of a truth, something we really want to be true? Is it the pursuit of a personal ambition? Is it the pursuit of a relationship we want something from? Or is it down there, the love of God and the love of others? There's the motive of our hearts, agape, unconditional, sacrificial love, that where Jesus said, deny yourself take up your cross daily and follow me. I think fully he was believed, what he was teaching was deny yourself every day and take up your cross. And if you look at the cross, what Jesus did on the cross is he laid down his life for the benefit of others. On the cross, Jesus, like he would say, he said, greater love has no man than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what the cross was. And so I think what Jesus is saying is that deny yourself. If you're going to be my disciples, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself daily. Take up your cross. Deny yourself daily and daily love others to the point of your own life being given for them. That's the cross we bear. If we're doing that, then there's really nothing else to worry about. Our big idea is Jesus does not cover up our sin. He cleanses us of it. Jesus has no desire to just cover our sin with his blood and leave it there, but he actually wants to cleanse us entirely of sin. When we're washed with his blood, we become as white as snow. And our weekly identity statement is, I have surrendered the motive of my life to Christ. I'm going to ask the band to come. I'm kind of changing the order here a little bit. But um, I want to sing again just a little bit of that song, uh, Surrender. Maybe we can just sing... A bridge and the bridge and the chorus of that and I'm going to ask our prayer team to go around the room to the tables and just want to give us a moment as we wrap up here for you to to maybe do a little business maybe, maybe you need to confess a sin maybe there's a motive in your life that's been a little bit off base and, and you'd like to talk to someone about it So at the tables around the room, we're going to have somebody at each table. I'll take this table up here. And if you would like to come and pray with someone while we sing this song about surrender, I would encourage you to do that. But before we do, I just want to pray a prayer for us, a benediction as we go out. After we sing, the band will just send us out. But I want to pray a a prayer of benediction, a blessing to send us out. Father... I ask that you send us out of here, your body, your people, with, with motives, underlying motives that actually, that actually drive us in a different way from this point forward in the week ahead. And I ask, Father, that you would give us a new motive for the way we live our life, that this afternoon as we go back to our families, that, that you'd give us a new motive for the way we approach our family. That, that maybe we would stop approaching it from the way we're used to doing so, and we'd start to approach our family from a place of sacrificial love. That as we head into the week ahead, Monday morning as we get up and we go off to work, that, that as we go and we work for that hard driving boss that drives us crazy, or we work for, for that employee that, that just cannot leave us alone, and that just drives us insane, that, that we have a new motive for the way that we approach them and the way that we love them from a place of sacrificial love. I pray, Father, that the motives of our heart would be changed so that we actually have a desire to know you more every single day. That when we wake up in the morning, we just are driven by this desire. I I don't even know where to begin, but I want to know him more today. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it's going to take, but I want to know him more. I want to know you more today. And that we would just have this, this hunger and thirst. For righteousness in our lives, this this obsessive hunger, this obsessive thirst that I want to know him more. I want more of him in my life, and I want to love the people in my life more like he loved me. I pray, Father, that you'd send us out driven, passionate, and full of the power of the Spirit to love in that way. In Jesus' name,